Welcome to the Sausage of Science. This is associate podcast producer, Teresa Gildner. Before starting this week's episode, we have a special announcement. The Human Biology Association is currently looking for a new junior service fellow to assist with podcast production. Like my fellow co-producer, Caroline Owens, and I, the new fellow will work to edit and post podcast episodes. I've been working on the Sausage of Science throughout 2020, and it's been a wonderful opportunity to hear what goes on behind the scenes in these interviews and to interact with important scholars in the field of human biology. If you are a graduate student or a postdoc with a passion for science communication and podcasts, then please contact Chris and Kara to let them know that you're interested. Their emails can be found in the show notes. Now on to this week's episode. We'll be featuring an excerpt read by another one of our former guests, Dr. Rebecca Lester. Dr. Lester is Professor of Sociocultural Anthropology. In this episode, you'll get to hear Dr. Lester read from her 2019 book, Famish, Eating Disorders and Failed Care in America. After listening to her excerpt, you'll also get to hear her original interview, which discusses her work exploring mental health and distress in academia. My name is Rebecca Lester, and I'm going to read to you from the preface of my 2019 book entitled Famished, Eating Disorders and Failed Care in America. This book begins with an ending. On a hot, sticky summer afternoon in 2009, I left the Cedar Grove Eating Disorder Clinic where I had been conducting research and drove to the local parish church. As I wound my way through the idyllic Midwestern American suburb, I passed the usual summer scenes. Children playing in sprinklers, shoppers at the local farmer's market, families out for a stroll, The sun was shining. It was peaceful and calm. The cheers from the nearby soccer field, a joyful soundtrack to an exquisite summer day. Yet all this small town charm felt hollow and callous to me, sitting as it did in grisly contrast to where I was headed, a funeral. And not the usual kind of funeral, where mourners bid farewell to great uncle Carl or grandma Nash, who lived full long lives. This funeral was for a young woman named Allison, who had been a patient at Cedar Grove the previous spring. Until three days prior, Allison had been a success story. When she left the clinic, she was healthy, invested in her recovery, thankful to be alive, and eager to get on with her life. Now she was dead. She had suffered a heart attack and died on the night of her 27th birthday. Allison was not my personal client. I am a psychotherapist as well as an anthropologist but I had come to know her fairly well during the time she was in treatment at Cedar Grove. She had come to the clinic because one night her father had found her unconscious on the bathroom floor next to a toilet full of vomit. She wasn't breathing. She had no pulse. He performed CPR on her for over 20 minutes, keeping her alive until the paramedics arrived. After that incident, Allison's parents insisted that she get help for her eating disorder. Shocked and shaken up by her near-death experience, she willingly signed herself into Cedar Grove the following day. In treatment, Allison worked hard. She pushed herself to open up in group therapy about her eating disorder, her self-loathing, her family dynamics, and her problematic ways of relating. She received specialized medical, nutritional, and psychiatric support and learned how to nourish her body without catapulting to the overwhelming anxiety and shame that could lead to purging. She worked with an individual therapist on the emotional, psychological, and interpersonal issues underlying her self-destructive behaviors. Over time, she made great strides toward health. By the time she was discharged four weeks later, 
Allison was medically and psychologically stable and looking forward to returning to her life. Four months after that, she was dead. I don't know what Allison's life had been since she'd left the clinic. I do know that she had been inconsistent in attending outpatient appointments with Dr. Casey, a psychiatrist and the director of the clinic, and her therapist, Sandra. After her last misappointment, both had tried to contact her, but she had not returned their calls. One could speculate that perhaps by that point, Allison had returned to her eating disorder and was distancing herself from her treatment team during her relapse. This is certainly possible. But because she was an adult, Dr. Casey and Sandra had little option but to wait for Allison to reach out to them if and when she wanted help. She never did. At the funeral, Carmen and Sheila, two clients who had known Allison at the clinic and were still in treatment there, were sitting in the pew in front of me at the, at the funeral home. They had gotten special passes from the clinic for the day so they could attend. I noticed that Carmen drew uneasy stares from the surrounding mourners. She had a feeding tube conspicuously inserted through her nose, the end of it taped awkwardly to her cheek. In the humid summer heat, the tape curled up at the corners and her hands fluttered up repeatedly to press it back in place. Sheila, sitting next to Carmen, looked stoic and closed down, staring straight ahead into the distance. Knowing Sheila, I could tell that this face of calm was not what it seemed. She was probably so paralyzed with anxiety that she couldn't bear to make eye contact with anyone. Both young women looked visibly tense, their bodies held tight and rigid in the wooden pew. Carmen cried silently during the service, the tears snaking their ways down, way down her cheeks. Sheila sat still as a stone. Despite Carmen and Sheila's obvious distress, I was glad to see both of them there. Not only because they had been close to Allison, but also because I thought it might be a catalyst for them and their own recoveries, perhaps jolting them to awareness that this, death, could happen to them too. But later back at Cedar Grove, Sheila told me that Allison's death had actually made her even less hopeful and motivated about her recovery than before. It's just like, why fight it, she asked me. Once you have this thing for so long, it's going to kill you one way or another. So what's the point of trying to get better? Sheila's question was more than simply rhetorical. There was something in her tone, the look in her eyes, and the catch in her voice that told me she actually wanted a response. She wanted me to tell her why she should keep trying when she had cycled through treatment on three different occasions, each time having to leave far before she was ready because her insurance ran out, and each time relapsing into a ferocious spiral of bulimia and self-harm. She wanted to know why she should keep trying when her parents had given up on her, her sister had stopped speaking to her, and she had lost three friends, including Allison, in the past year to eating disorders. Maybe I just can't do life, Sheila concluded, looking at her hand. So what happened to Allison? Why didn't her progress and recovery stick? The standard answer is that eating disorders are intractable and difficult to treat, and that people who have them often resist treatment and don't really want to get better. And that is partially true. But the real reason is much more complex and eludes a simple answer. It is true that eating disorders are virulent, progressive conditions that do not easily relinquish their hold on sufferers. It is also true that many people with eating disorders are often ambivalent about getting well. 
But to figure Allison's relapse and death as a product of her personal relationship with her illness elides the ways in which care itself becomes complicit in the continuation and exacerbation of suffering. In eating disorder treatment, care and harm become entangled. And the tenor of what anthropologist Lisa Stevens calls, Stevenson calls the psychic life of biopolitics conditions the terms of recovery. As we will see in the case of eating disorders, this psychic life is characterized by a structural ethos of withholding, restriction, and deprivation that moralizes clients' desire for care as itself pathological, even as resistance to care is figured as symptomatic. This catches eating disorder patients in a dilemma. Both wanting and not wanting care are pathologized in treatment and used to legitimate the withholding of care as a therapeutic act. This rendering of clients' desire for care itself as problematic reinforces the core dynamics of eating disorders by conditioning clients to understand their own needs for care as illegitimate and even shameful. With eating disorders, where a core part of the illness is believing one doesn't deserve to want to or need anything at all, a care system that pathologizes its desire and need and withholds care is inherently and profoundly problematic, producing relationships of care that are fraught, ambivalent, and even damaging, although they can also be productive, meaningful, and healing. Understanding these complexities of care will give us insight into the cultural and social conditions of its emergence and can point us to new models of intervention. This episode is part of our academic series. One of the reasons we're bringing on Dr. Rebecca Lester is that she's quite involved in looking at how departments and universities handle depression, particularly with graduate students. And she runs groups at her university, which is Washington University, St. Louis, which is where I got my PhD, working with students before and after they go into the field, which links back to Augustine Fuentes from earlier in our academics. Right. I've known Rebecca's work for a long time because she did some earlier work on dissociation She's a licensed psychoanalyst and a psychological anthropologist, so she does both. And we invited her several years ago when the Safe 13 studies first Mm. came out. We were looking to put a session together for the AAA that addressed some of the other non-research-oriented issues that people encounter in field-based anthropology. And it may be not coincidental, but my own study of family dynamics in the field came directly out of that session or preparing for that session. And the Speaking of Race podcast by our friend Joe Weaver and their colleagues grew out of a focus on how race is addressed in anthropology. And that was part of that session as well. Now, the irony is we invited Rebecca to be part of that session, but then my 100-year-old grandmother had just passed and I was to make it to the session. So I didn't get to see her present on this. So I'm as excited. uh, I'm as excited as anyone to talk to her today about this topic because it's been a long time coming. Well, welcome to the Sausage of Science and thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I'm Chris. Welcome to Sausage of Science. And I'm Kara. Welcome to the Sausage of Science as well. We start off our podcast the same way with every single guest, and that's learning a little bit about you and your journey into how you got into the field of anthropology and why you actually decided to pursue it as a career. Right, yeah. So my pathway to anthropology started when I was a kid, and I will say, I start by saying that I knew by the time I was maybe 10 years old 
that I wanted to be an anthropologist. Wow. No anthropology was till I was like 25 years old. Yeah. I'm not sure how I first heard of it, but I knew what it was and I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I grew up in the South. I grew up in the panhandle of Florida in the 1980s, 70s and 80s. And we were the only Jewish family in my elementary school and in my neighborhood and in the surrounding area. I remember really vividly kind of encountering these questions of difference and how people could react so strongly to something that they didn't understand, how it shaped the way that people understood the world. I got interested in that. Like, why are people different? Why did judge people in certain ways? So I got interested in it that way. And then somewhere along the line, learned about what it was as a discipline and wanted to get the heck out of Dodge as soon as I could. And the idea of being able to get paid to do something that enabled me to travel all around the world and learn about all sorts of different ways of being in the world just really captured my imagination. I was sold. And so I read everything I possibly could get my hands on. I thought at first about doing archaeology, and then I spent a summer working on a dig and decided that was not what I wanted to do, Mm -hmm. um, and that I was more interested in working with live people and just kind of went from there. And as soon as I was in college and started taking the classes, I I was just confirmed that that's what I wanted. Now, you're uh, also a psychoanalyst, yeah? I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Licensed clinical social worker. How did that come in to your viewer? When I was in college, you know, I, I started off majoring in anthropology, but I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do psych. So I was kind of back and forth, back and forth. Eventually solidified anthropology, but learned about this thing called psychological anthropology, which was just perfect. And so I pursued that in my graduate training. And so I've always been interested in these kinds of questions. But of course, a PhD in anthropology does not prepare one or give one the right to, you know, engage in clinical work with anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so once I was done with my PhD and my first book was done and I felt pretty confident that tenure was going to happen, I had started the new project in the eating disorder clinic. And it just renewed for me that, that desire to, to do something more, more active in the clinical sense and, and to have more skills in understanding than what I had gotten as, as an anthropologist. And so I went back to school part-time while I was doing that research. So on that, I'm curious, I'm familiar with folks getting in medical anthropology, for instance, um, a degree in anthropology and then say an MPH right. to be able to speak across disciplines and work in applied anthropology. Is that a common approach, and how has that benefited you as an anthropologist? It has not been a particularly common approach, although there are more anthropologists who are pursuing social work as an adjunctive kind of degree, but it's been enormously helpful in all sorts of ways. It did kind of equip me with a a language for speaking to clinicians that has helped a lot with translating my, my study findings into things that they can understand and appreciate. It also just, unfortunately, just having that degree gets people to listen to you that they wouldn't necessarily otherwise. It also gave me certain kinds of access because when I was conducting my research at the eating disorders clinic is when I was in my training for my MSW program. So as a clinical trainee in in an accredited program, they were able to kind of fold me into their clinical structure in a different way that, Mm. You know, I was covered by different kinds of, you know, ethical and legal protections and stuff like Mm. that. So it gave me different access than if I had just been a straight up Mm. photographer. There's a complementarity there to what we hear with the MPH. Uh, So it sounds like 
you you have up on your your website, uh, which is a really wonderful website actually, with your new book uh, that you just talked talked about your work with eating disorder clinics. Uh, the book "Famished Eating Disorders and Failed Care in America," and it seems like you have come at this from a couple of different ways. One being personal, in that you yourself had an eating disorder more than once in your life, but two, it was it also seemed to be part of your clinical work when getting that that social work degree. I'm putting things out of order of what I originally intended, but could you kind of tell us a little bit about how that personal and professional like ended up meeting together and culminating in this book? My interest in studying eating disorders certainly sprung from personal experience uh, as I talk about, you know, at some length in the book, although it's not about me, so, but it's in there as context. I was hospitalized with an eating disorder at two different times. I went through treatment and all sorts of recovery process after that. And so it was always an interest of mine, and I had actually wanted to study eating disorders for my PhD, but at the time, it was not common to do anthropological field work in the U.S. if you expect mm. to get a job, so I was dissuaded from doing that. So when I came back to it as my, my second big project, it was kind of coming around to something that I'd been wanting to do for, you know, a decade. And so I did the research... And I was going to write a pretty standard, not standard, hopefully, but, you know, straightforward <laughs> academic sort of, you know, ethnography and that sort of thing. And I was struggling with the writing of it. And I realized that I had to figure out a way to bring in my own experience as a, as a frame for how I was understanding what I was seeing and how I was talking about what I saw. And so, yeah, it took me a little while to figure out how to weave those things together in a meaningful way that didn't hopefully detract from the, the broader argument of the, of the book. But yeah, I mean, it is a part of my experience, a part of my life, and it, it directly shaped my research questions and my methods and my interpretations. Could you give us a little bit of a, a preview of what that broader argument was, uh, or is, I should say, in the book? Yeah, so there's a, a couple different pieces to it. So the core of the book is this ethnography of an eating disorder clinic where I worked off and on for about seven years. Oh, um, wow. So, yeah, it was a long period of engagement. Some of that was full-time, like all the time, and then some of that was, was more sporadic. So that's the core of the book. So one of the arguments has to do with that. But the bigger argument is looking at the fact that eating disorders are the deadliest of all psychiatric conditions. They're extremely widespread. And those, even people who are not at risk of death are suffering and losing quality of life at an alarming degree. And yet they're very poorly funded by insurance. Some, a lot of insurance typically exclude them from coverage. There's, there's lots of ways that insurance companies can jiggle things around because they fall into this weird space between medical and psychological. Mm. There's all sorts of maneuvering that can happen so that insurance companies just don't have to pay for treatment. So one of the motivating questions of the book is, you know, why is that the case? That doesn't seem to go together, that we've got this really deadly widespread illness that's not getting treated. So what's going on? Why did that happen? But the big finding, I would say, as far as the ethnography, is looking at how the implementation of managed care in the clinic replicates in very profound ways assumptions about deservingness for care. Mm -hmm. For example, there's a, an ethos in the, with the implementation of managed care that, of course, resources are limited. We have limited resources. We must distribute these resources in such a way that we can maximize patient care, right? That's, in, at least in theory, what's happening. So we have to ration them very carefully, and we have to go through all sorts of, jump through all sorts of hoops to get people to prove that they need this care. So this ethos of rationing and this ethos of scarcity 
that comes through from the economic structuring of our healthcare system percolates in through the clinic. And so the clinicians are rationing and dealing with this sense of scarcity. So part of the argument of the book too is like, what are what is really going on with eating disorders? Hmm. Um, and it's not what a lot of people think, but there is this deeply ingrained experience of scarcity and questions about one's own deservedness for, for any kind of resources, you know, food resources, attention resources, sleep, water, I mean, anything. So there's the sense that one should always take less because you deserve nothing. So the least you can take is the best. Hmm. So when you come into a treatment context where you're getting that message from the people who are supposedly providing care for you, oh, you, we're going to give you six days of care. Oh, you need seven days? No, there must be, no, you're not working hard enough. Mm. You're not sick enough for seven days. I'm going to give you six and you should get better with six. And, you know, so this, this sense that there's, a, there's a, always the scarcity of, scarcity of care that replicates and reinforces what people come into theory try to address. So is the book out? It is out. It came out in November. But to, to bring it, loop it back to what we were talking about earlier, like the Hackademic series. Earlier in our very first Hackademics episode, we brought on Augustine Fuentes here from my department uh, to talk about coming back from the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we posted this one in August, September, right when graduate students and faculty were coming back from long field seasons. And everybody has this experience, or most everybody has this experience of a post-field slump, and they just can't get anything done. And this is, of course, part of a broader issue of particularly graduate student mental health. And Chris and I know you have taken strides to address this in your department, and wondering if you could talk about that just a little bit. Absolutely, yeah. This is a huge, huge issue, and it's it's something that I think people are getting slightly more aware. It's a huge problem, and I think it's especially challenging in anthropology because of the way that we do our work and we go away for so long, and you know the structures mm-hmm. of that. In terms of our department, we're we're still in process of figuring out the best things to do. Our grad students recently took the initiative to do a, a survey of grad students who are back from the field to try to get some data about, you know, what kinds of services did they need? What did they get? What were they aware of? That sort of thing. But on the faculty end, we are about to have a preparing to go to the field. So every spring we have something for graduate students about How do you prepare yourself for this monumental experience that you may not have any idea, you know, what's coming? Or even if you do, it's it's totally different than going for the summer if you're going to uproot yourself and go somewhere for a year. So we try to anticipate some of the challenges that people might have in the field and help them put structures in place that will help support them while they're there. We also have a coming back from the field workshop to give students a place to articulate some of the struggles, to know that they are not the only ones that are going through that, that there's a huge adjustment in coming back Mm -hmm. to the States, if you're working, you know, somewhere else, but then back into academia, Mm -hmm. which is a whole other different culture. So we, we try to address issues like motivation, certainly, and how to talk to your advisor if you're struggling, where to get resources on campus and off campus, how to navigate if you need to get therapy when you're overseas and you know you don't have student health to to access how do students respond to to these workshops different ways i think they have been grateful that they exist i think there's also a sense among the grad students that it's still not enough and i don't think they're necessarily 
expecting the department to wave a magic wand and make sure everything is, is okay. But I think there is some sense that the university could be doing more at that level because it's certainly not just anthropology graduate students who have certain kinds of challenges. So I think there's an appreciation, but kind of like, yeah, that's nice. And (laughs) we need all these other things to change or we need to have different kinds of funding available for people who have a mental health emergency in the field or, Mm. you know, need some sort of services that are not available where they are. Like, how are we going to deal with that? So you had mentioned in the side that things are a little bit more different or perhaps difficult when it comes to faculty. And I was wondering if you might be willing to expand on that a little bit. Absolutely. So one thing that I think is critical in this area of grad student mental health is educating faculty and educating mentors on how to, to mentor people. I mean, we're, we're not therapists, right? So there, you know, there, there are lines around what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate. At the same time, you know, we, we are mentoring people through six years of their lives. And we're not just mentoring the part of them that's writing the papers or the part of them that is giving a job talk or whatever. Like these are, you know, whole people. And part of the experience of becoming an academic, I think, is learning how to integrate these different aspects of who we are and not compartmentalize so much the work us from the other part of us because they're not they're they're integrated so anyway a lot of mentors a lot of faculty of different generations have expressed that I've seen a lot of discomfort about talking about anything that even remotely approaches anything other than strictly academic work and and I understand that I mean they were trained in a different era different kinds of understandings you know if somebody is not comfortable engaging those issues then it's probably best that they don't but I think we can help people become more comfortable in engaging those issues and again not that we're therapists or anything like that but it's just changing the climate and changing the atmosphere and the culture of our departments that make it not a secret if somebody is struggling or even has questions or needs support. It doesn't have to be that there's a crisis. In so many departments, it's just an unspoken rule that you just don't talk about this stuff because there's something wrong with you if you don't buck up and just persevere regardless. And so we need to change that entire culture. I think you're more charitable than I would be because, and this is sort of the point I've come to and a point that I'm trying to make in a book that I'm writing, but but it's that we train students to be critical thinkers, to be humanitarians, to be activists and advocates, and to think really hard about all of the social inequalities and problems in the world. And thus, we train them and inculcate in them the very type of anxiety and depression that they're then suffering from. And if we ignore that, it is us who are the problem. And I don't care if they're an older generation who wasn't trained in it, it's time to wake up and acknowledge the environment that we're creating. That's fair. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons that I I love the work you're doing. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, you, you mentioned that we're not trained for this, but I wonder if you see a place for a type of supervision role in academia for anthropology. Absolutely. I mean, in my mind, that is precisely the kind of thing that mentors should be doing. Or peer mentors, it doesn't have to be your advisor. But yes, absolutely, we need a place to be able to talk We're developing very meaningful relationships with people, meaningful for us, meaningful for them. And of course, we're going to bring our own stuff into the field. We know this, you know, we've been talking about this in the field for decades. We bring our stuff into the field. We experience things that are affecting how we're 
interpreting what's going on. We definitely need a place to, to kind of process all that, not so much in a therapeutic sense, but just to explore it and become aware of our own frameworks, our own schemas that we're using as we're interacting with, with the material. Yeah, it's interesting. We To go back just for a second to the question of grad student mental health and kind of related to this, I wanted to mention that Beatrice Reyes-Foster and I were co-curators of a blog series on anthrodendum about trauma and resilience in ethnographic fieldwork that features blog posts from primarily in the field graduate students and some, some early career scholars who talk about things that happen to them in the field and what kinds of challenges they encountered in terms of making sense of it in, in different ways, but, but also some con- constructive pointers about ways that we can, even in the absence of the institutional support that would ideally be there, what are some ways that we can kind of manage some of that stuff that can come up? So we've been going for a little bit, but I would like to address, because you brought this up also with the graduate student health, that the grad students are like, yay, thank you for the workshops, but we need more. And you mentioned a couple of things that can be done at the university level, but I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit more about departmental level and university level that can be done to promote health among students, talking about it and giving them the resources they need. What might that look like? I think there's a couple things. At the department level, there definitely has to be a shift in the way we think about the mentoring, as I said. And there has to be a shift in a way that we think about what dedication to your profession looks like. I think sometimes if people are not just head down and go 24-7, there is a perception that they are not serious scholars. They're not being rigorous in their methodologies or whatever. And it's, or somebody needs to take a break from the field or, you know, whatever's going on. There has to be some better education and better guidelines from the chair or whomever that would come from about what's expected as being a mentor and, and how we can support students that way. At the university level, though, one of the key things that we've run into here at, you know, WashU is we have a pretty good student health service at WashU that includes mental health service, and it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty good. You know, people can get basically what they need for the most part, unless you're not in Missouri. And then they can't treat you. And that's not their fault. I mean, these are the laws of the state that you cannot provide services to somebody outside of the state because you're licensed in Missouri. However, what the university could do is figure out how to make it work. There's got to be ways people do this sort of thing. And they need to have some sort of services in place for people who are traveling. And again, it's not just anthropologists. People travel all the time to go look at archives or to do whatever they're doing. And they might need these kinds of services or to be able to continue with a therapist that they've been seeing to have some continuity of care, that sort of thing. So that would be one key thing. Having some sort of funds available if they health crisis. We've got great services for like if you get in a car accident and you need to be brought home for something like that, but we don't have any provision if somebody is really, really struggling and needs to come home from the field and doesn't have the money to do that. We don't have any way of getting them back. So those would be two pieces. Those are really good good points. I, I like them both, but I'm I'm reminded of a doctoral student who when we had a meeting right after the Augustine's podcast aired and we were thinking about this. It was fresh. This is a problem. We do one meeting and after we're thinking about it and keeping things going becomes an issue. But the student had said, well, we realize you can't support our whole therapy, all of it, but one session before and one session after the field because I, I know I, when I ask, when I sit down and meet with them, you know, they're, I ask them straightforward. I have my list of questions, almost like an interview schedule. Like, how was your stress? 
how are you doing emotionally? And I'm really impressed with their frankness and their willingness to answer and that they do take it seriously and they, they are responsive, but I'm not trained. When they give me heavy stuff, which they all do, I'm kind of like, well, join the crowd. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, you're, you're in good company. Buck up, camper. We're all going through stuff. You know, I don't know how necessarily to proceed from there, but having those resources available for actual trained care, it sounds like a no-brainer for all of us. Right. (laughs) Which means universities, this is a call to arms of start putting resources where your students need them and where your faculty need them because you rely on us to get the work done. So you need to support us. I think we have to be the ones to go out there and say we need (laughs) this allotted to our departments, right? Yeah, no, it's true. And I mean, I know our department makes strides for it as well, but as you were saying, the university level really needs to start pitching in and putting the resources to, to implement emergency action when it's needed. I don't mean to put uh, you on the spot, Kara. I'm grad director, so I feel a responsibility. I don't have tenure yet. <laughs> so maybe not Kara yet, but I, uh, I definitely feel You know, I'll take it up at some point in the next like two years before I should be right now. You brought up a phrase that we use regularly now on this show, work-life interaction, because you cannot separate the work from the life. And it is an interaction or an integration. And so we always like talking about how you manage your work-life integration and maybe some fun thing that you do that no one outside of academia might be aware of, some random hobby or books you read or shows you watch, those kinds of things. Yes. So work-life interaction, it is a constant challenge, I think, although I've gotten much better at it over the past several years, I think, with deliberate effort. I use a lot of different colors on my Google calendar to make sure where I'm supposed to be and what time. I've gotten a lot better. And again, this is, you know, you were just mentioning about, about tenure. This gets easier as you have tenure. In some ways, in some ways it gets harder, but saying no to things. And like, I will look at my calendar and be like, okay, I have five things back to back. So I'm going to take this half hour and play a game on my phone and don't not talk to anybody, but I'm going to block it out so I don't fill it in with some other meeting because it'll fill in. It's like if the space, if the time is there, it will get filled in. So I have to be very deliberate about blocking out time to do nothing or like, here's the time when I'm going to catch up with my friend or, you know, whatever the case may be. Honest truth, I keep a pillow and a blanket in my office and I've been known to take a nap on the floor. <laughs> yes, I see that. <laughs> I've got a giant cot in my labs <laughs> right there. Huge proponent of naps. So absolutely take those when you can. I was laying on that couch behind me when Kara called. I was thinking of <laughs> doing the podcast while I laid there. Yeah, it's real, you know, because it's hard. I have two kids and have been a single mom and it's, it's a lot. It's, you have to be very deliberate about building mm-hmm. in time for things that are other than work or, or, you know, driving around town to activities or whatever. As far as things that I do for fun, I am completely addicted to Audible. Hmm. I listen to books constantly, and they're almost all fiction. Nice. I get. You tell. Yeah. What do you What <laughs> yeah, do you listen to? What genre? What genre is your favorite? I like to listen to things that are kind of like murder, intrigue, psychological thriller ah. type things. So it kind of varies. What's okay. your What's your most recent? Let's see. I just started one. Let me pull it up so I can tell you what it's called. I think it's called The Retreat by Dan Frey. 
Fry, right? I don't know that this author. It just looks, you know, it's like kind of mindless stuff, mm -hmm. but um, I love it. So I listen to that while I'm doing stuff around the house, before I go to sleep, when I'm taking those half hour breaks in my office, and it just is a, like a reset. And I, mm. you know, escapism. Yep. I'm right there with you. Candy crushing it and listening to audiobooks. <laughs> still, Candy Crush is still a thing. Yeah, I just just started Candy Crushing, and uh -huh. Sonia and I, Sonia Pritzker, uh, who Rebecca knows, we we go back and forth competing on that. So that's great. So Rebecca, we're totally going to bring you back onto the show uh, when we have a chance to take a look at your book. But in the meantime, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Are you on any form of social media platform or is email and website the best way? Well, email is great. rjlester at wustl.edu. My website is www.rebeccalester.leave. And then I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at psychanthro. So you can always DM me there. Yeah, those would be the best ways. All right. Well, awesome. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today. This has been great. We really appreciate your candor on these really tough topics and we hope that some people find them really helpful. Uh, I know Chris and I have. Yeah. We'll be doing the Rebecca Lester workshop very shortly. <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it.